North Self Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to episode two of The Wrestler That Was. Now, last time we dealt with the crazy, crazy career of Jake the Snake Roberts. And with this thing, I wanted to jump ahead about a decade or so to see how someone from the 1990s would stack up against the Snake Man. I landed on Razor Ramon. Scott Hall, whatever you want to call him. And to be honest, I thought about not doing him here. I don't want this to be a eulogy. When he passed earlier this year, there was this tremendous outpouring of emotion over the bad guy. And with good reason. He is one of the greatest of all times and constantly shows up on people's best wrestler to never win a world title list. Now, of all the names on that list, Razor kind of stands out as the one that It probably should have happened. I mean, he was over enough, talented enough. And at the time, the roster was thin enough at the top that it could have been super easy to slot him up there. See, Piper, sadly, was never going to get the belt over Hogan. Owen Hart was never getting it against anyone. And Baron Corbin can fuck himself. Razor was an incredible performer. And I can't wait to break him down and see where he ranks. Now, the system we're using is simple. 10 categories scored out of 10 points each. This gives us a big, easy-to-understand score of 100. Percentages, we all get it. Jake the Snake Roberts is the current leader and only guy on the list with 76.356 points. Let's get to Razor Ramon. So, the first category is narrative, and what I'm looking for here out of 10 points is um, is a kind of structure uh, in which hopefully his narrative can be um, kind of traced from point A to point B. So for narrative, this dude in very bright colors starts showing up on me TV. He's telling me to say hello to Razor Ramon. He's telling me not to give a shit about school or what your parents tell you. Okay, okay, I'm on board. He's beating up fruit vendors. I'm on board. Finally, he's refusing to pay for meals at a restaurant. Dude, I'm on board. Now, for some reason, they believe that I would be booing this asshole. But how could they think of that when he's standing up for literally everything that I believe in? The fruit store in my hometown is where all the degenerates worked. Never in my life, not once, have I ever respected a fruit merchant. And you shouldn't either. But then he came out, and I still booed him. Now, I guess that's because he beat up Randy Savage. I'm guessing the reasoning behind that too was it was machismo that had a problem with macho. But look, that's the thinnest line of reasoning since Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris because she was qualified. He fucks with Savage. He teams with Ric Flair, which, I mean, come on. Listen, if you have a problem with someone acting macho, then Ric Flair is probably going to make your fake Latin blood boil. Then he stumbles into a WWF title match with Bret Hart. Obviously, this Cuban, and, and he was Cuban, right? This Cuban had a major problem with Bret's family. And it's crazy. It, honestly, I find it crazy uh, to me to think that like, Razor Ramon seems to be the first dude to be like, oh, Helen Hart is stretched over skin, over bones, and Stu is just fucking old. Then again, uh, maybe that was Bobby on commentary. 
Gorilla always, on the other hand, seemed awe by Stude, whereas a guy like Lord Alfred Hayes shows the man nothing but contempt as he cuts him off and declares him speechless. By the way, no way Stu Hart puts up with any, uh, <laughs> number one, no one, but uh, certainly not a Cuban immigrant speaking to him in this, in this fashion. No, no, no. He would take Razor Ramon and stretch him uh, just as quick as he'd stretch Tony Montana. Neither one of them would last two seconds in that dungeon. He then picks on another noted old man, Bob Backlund, in front of a noted ancient man, Julius Caesar. Now, Ramon was either insulting, fighting, teeming with, or attempting to impress old men from 1992 to 1993. Then, he realized he could get some trim on the road and likely focused on that instead. But then something happened. After having tremendous success beating and leeching onto the old, it's the young that propels him to his highest level. He underestimates a child in the ring and gets beat. But this was not enough to make him turn good, however. Even when he offered a bounty on the child or said he would pay 10K of his own money to get in there and roll around with the child, people still wouldn't cheer him. No. Weird, right? A giant Cuban wanting to beat up a 150-pound kid didn't garner any sympathy. Instead, it took millionaire and noted douchebag Ted DiBiase mocking him incessantly for the fans to get behind him. But the writing was on the wall, though. The people wanted to cheer Razor, and they got behind him. The Intercontinental title was up for grabs, and Razor wins a battle royal in which he beats up a team of Quebecers, and then later a match where he beats up another Quebecer, Rick Martel, to win the title. I had zero recollection of this feud against the province of Quebec, but, you know, I hate Quebec, and it's where I live, so big win for Razor. The problem? Shawn Michaels was never beaten for the belt. And this leads to a massive feud between the two, which lasts nearly a year. In the interim, though, Razor had a problem. You see, Razor, from the start, really only held true to one value. That being... If something happens to this gold, then something's going to happen to you. This is thrust to the forefront when the government came after him for back taxes. And after dealing with that, he becomes ensconced with Sean and his bodyguard for the better part of 1994. They trade the belt, the intercontinental belt, that is, back and forth, with Razor even going outside the box and bringing in Walter Payton as his employee. But, like any good employee, he was forced to wear his employer's shirt tucked in as to not alienate any customers. A sort of Razor Ramon uniform, if you will. Then he fights a country music star, because it's time. Then a high school principal. See, 1995 was a bit of an aimless year for the bad guy. All the while, he's crafted this beautiful friendship with the kid. And then some dude from Puerto Rico who we're supposed to believe was his best friend. See, he and the kid were buddies until the end. Until they weren't. Because the kid had some sort of resentment and he helped a presumed homosexual win the Intercontinental title from Razor as 1996 opened. He would then put the kid in a diaper and get beat up by a mastodon before disappearing. Now, six years later, he returns as Scott Hall. And now, he's trying to murder people with cinder blocks or at the very least, turn their knees to dust. Then he's gone again. See, I don't think this is as clean a cumulative character arc as, say, Jake. I do think that his turn and all the stuff with the one, two, three kid is quite organic. See, it plays off his natural hubris and it teaches him that he has to be better. 
The feud over the Intercontinental title makes sense too, as he wins the belt fairly, but then gets involved with the former champion, his cronies. See, it's no surprise that in 1994, it's based on this, and it's great, right? And he's and because of this too, he's one of the most over guys in the promotion. It's great stories are what makes great characters. But he loses his way in 95. Well, he doesn't. They just kind of bounce him around from challenger to challenger. There's no clear narrative anymore. He's just... The, the, the over guy to drop the Intercontinental title to whoever the next heel champion is. See, I would assume that there was a, a, like a revenge story in the works with Goldust, but then he's suspended and gone before this comes to fruition. And upon his return, like I mentioned, he's in the NWO doing stupid NWO things. Cinder blocks, attempted murder with an ambulance. It's all pointless. Then he fights a cowboy for no reason. It's a mess. So, a really strong start narratively, but not consistent. That gives us a 5 out of 10. Next category, how good was he as a babyface? So, with Razor, his best tool, and he's got a lot of tools, right? Is that he was able to be cool so effortlessly. In fact, I probably think that Scott Hall might be the coolest character, coolest professional wrestler of all time. See, the 1990s were a perfect time to bring this to the forefront. The product was growing up with people that were kids in the 80s. And by the 90s, they were teenagers. And they're less into superheroes and more into cool. Do you have any idea how cool I thought I was in my fluorescent sweatsuits and non-matching keds? Well, Razor was perfect for this. I distinctly remember in grade 7 or 8, I must have been around 7, telling a friend at the bus stop that I was going to grow my beard out as soon as I can grow a beard, like Razor Ramon to impress girls. That's how imbued I was into this character and how cool I thought he was. There's also this, this incredible smoothness to his movement. Like, he's the type of guy that you know would command any room he was in. And what's amazing about Razor is that he's also able to draw tremendous sympathy despite usually being in there with guys that were much smaller than him. I mean, contrast him with Diesel, right? When Diesel fights Shawn Michaels, a large swath of the crowd starts cheering for Michaels, when in fact Michaels is the heel. When Razor does it, they're all in his camp. And I think part of this is because despite the coolness, Razor was a person with flaws, like a real human. We struggle to connect with characters that are flawless. That's a big reason why the new Star Wars films are as unpopular as they are. Ray Palpatine slash Skywalker is flawless. So you don't see the humanity in her. In fact, you hate her and you're actively rooting for her death for three films. It's a reason why so many ad- adaptations of Superman struggle with this as well. They make him too perfect and so you don't end up you know, feeling for the character. But with Razor, you get that flaw. And that flaw being he has a terrible temper. And it works so well as a face because when he loses it, you like seeing him kick the shit out of guys. But it costs him, right? There's a real misconception uh, with characters in current wrestling, and you know, a lot of current Hollywood too, that failing at something hurts the character and kills it dead. But it's the opposite. You'll generally get behind a character that has, that, that has flaws and fails. This forces a character to struggle to get better. This was true about Hogan. He was too trusting of his friends, so he got betrayed. Randy Savage, too insane. Austin, an outright refusal to trust anyone. Rey Mysterio, cuckolded by his best friend. The list goes on and on and on. Flawed characters are, make great baby faces. 
And I think they could have run with Razor as a top flight A1 babyface. See, that's where he differs from a guy like Jake. Jake was probably never going to be believably pushed over Hogan, Savage, Warrior. But those type of guys were long gone by the time Razor was hot. I think Face Razor could have been amazing in the Diesel role. And since he's already a face, there would have been no need to turn him into like a pandering asshole. See, I could never imagine Razor as anything other than like the smug, cocky dude he already was. And that's a good thing. So Razor Ramon in the face category, I give him a solid 8 out of 10, which is actually the same as Jake. I think they're really kind of similar in that way. They're, they're right at the tippy top of the babyface um, side of the roster. And they're really important to getting heels over and drawing in new fans. As a heel, though, I got to be honest, I think this is a very pedestrian category for him. If we're counting his early NWO run, we're having a different conversation. But Heel Razor from 1992 to 1993 is like kind of a boring villain. Why am I supposed to hate him? Because he has chains and tells me to look at him all the time? Sure, he could give a great beatdown. But lots of guys could do that. And the guys who could do that also put up some great stellar character stuff. I like his big heel matches, specifically the Survivor Series tag where he teams with Flair. And I love the rumble shot against Brett. But it's not like he's some sort of a god when it comes to drawing heat. He's serviceable as a heel. Nothing more. Oddly enough, even the bullshit version of NWO Scott Hall later is more interesting. At least he's out there trying stuff. Plus, by then, he had the act down. So it never looked dumb or he was trying too hard. On the heel side of things, as much as I score a nice high eight for Razor here, I got to go with a four. I think he's just a bit of a subpar heel, which I actually found kind of surprising. That being said, is he the first guy who was hairy as fuck but allowed to be on TV? He actually looked like a grown-ass man. What I wouldn't give for some Scott Hall chest hair. Jesus Christ. And face hair. Still, to this day, I can't grow that shit in right. So if I was to rank their char- the characters of Scott Hall, I'd go number three would be debut Razor Ramon. Just another bad guy, despite the hair. Number two would be NWO Scott Hall. Sure, it's dumb, but like it's somewhat interesting until he's slumming it with Bradshaw. And number one's easy. It's face Razor Ramon. Like, if, if the debuting character was just another bad guy, then this version of Razor was the bad guy. A top-level face when the company desperately needed overstars in the wake of the Lex Luger fiasco. Razor picked up the torch and really gave everyone a reason to care. So his in-ring work. Um, in-ring work meaning how well he did moves. Did things look smooth? Did they look realistic? And I think everything Razor did looked crisp and smooth. He's another one of these guys. You just believed everything. His punches were amazing. They never looked like they missed. If Jake and Savage were like the kings of jabs that looked great, Razor was like the undisputed champion of the roundhouse punch. It looked like he fucking crushed you with tremendous impact. I even like the three-punch sequence where he'd hit you with the third one, where he'd go all the way around his body for the third one. And I think he had a great way of selling things that could be mundane. Case in point, his arm work. The arm wrenches really looked snug and like pulled in. Like they were really, really tight, right? 
but the intensity and urgency he would show when he's driving his shoulder into the already twisted arm, special, just special. He cranked in headlocks. His Irish whips looked like he was trying to throw you out of the ring. He even manages to look cool while giving a simple belly-to-back suplex. It's like he scoops you up and like he's so relaxed, he just drops you straight down. Boom, right? And I thought that fit really well into his character's M.O. His pins look great too as he made sure to get his whole upper body over the shoulders so he'd hold you down more. I never got the sense watching Razor that this was a guy trying to do anything other than win a wrestling match. And while he made every move in the ring, um, everything he did really helped sell the character more. His signature spots, great too. The fallaway slam, which I believe until his death he called the sack of shit, always worked well. And it was a great utilization of his size. It's impressive. He could toss almost everybody square over his head, even Diesel. Then he, like, after he threw him, he'd do the slow sit-up and maybe, like, slap his hands together to show, like, I just got done tossing this guy. Showing his opponent was no more a threat to him than his continued sobriety. His choke slam always looked good. Looked like it killed. I wish I could include the uh, big show stumble around he would do in WCW, mocking the giant. But, alas, I cannot. So I only mention it here because it popped me every time. Razor's Edge, too. Tremendous finisher. One of the best-looking finishers of all time. It looked like it required an incredible amount of effort to do, but it looked like it would kill you dead on impact. It's kind of sad that some of his best ones were against the Cruiserweights in WCW because I can't use them as examples. But again, looked devastating each and every time. Razor, Ramon, Scott Hall, an absolute pro, a pro. Just a pro, plain and simple. I give him a solid seven for his work. And I think that's pretty fair. All right, so match quality. So what I do for this category is every match I ranked, I ranked every pay-per-view match, some TV matches. Um, I give an average star rating, and then I multiply that by two to give us a score on 10. So Razor shines a little more in this category. I mean, really, even his stuff that would be considered bad is just kind of boring as opposed to outright offensive. Like he doesn't have any stinkers like Jake did, right? And then you pepper that in with some legit classics and you have a really strong case for a tremendous in-ring career. Now, some guys have great work in ring, but just can't seem to get it together to create those great matches. Not Razor. When you gave him time in the WWF, he almost always delivers. I had his average match ranking at 3.008 and that gives us a cumulative 6.016. Let's look at his bottom five matches. Number five, worst match, uh, versus Goldust, the Royal Rumble 1996 for the Intercontinental title. I'm at a two and a half. Imagine, a two and a half breaks his top five bottom matches. That should tell you how strong his in-ring career is. Now, this match with Goldust, I think Scott Hall himself would probably have told you that his heart just wasn't in the match. He was a homophobe, and he didn't want to put in the extra work to build something great with Dustin. Maybe Razor couldn't have pulled it off, right? Because maybe the Goldust character just wasn't conducive to great matches during this time period. But I still think that a motivated Razor could have pulled this up to about three stars. Number four versus IRS, the Royal Rumble 1994. Not a great Royal Rumble track record for the dude. For the Intercontinental title, two and a half stars. And look, I'm going to say right off the bat, this is in no way his fault. IRS doesn't have good matches with anyone. In fact, It's probably due to a Herculean effort on Hall's part that this isn't a one-star or classic. 
Plus, it's a story around uh, a government pencil pusher stealing some dude's gold. I mean, how could, how could, with that story, how could you possibly overcome the stank of Mike Rotundo? Number three versus Dean Douglas. In your house for the Great White North, two and a quarter. This is nestled between Bulldog and Diesel shitting the bed and making a difference, Fatu battling Triple H. And this is a match in which both guys, Razor and Douglas, couldn't be bothered to hide their contempt for the other. Douglas gets handed the belt before the match, but can't even keep it to one night due to the unrelenting complaining of the clique. This would have been better served as Douglas stealing a victory here instead of Hall achieving a backstage victory over Shane Douglas. It's all just uninspiring. Razor was unmotivated, so was Dean. Boring match. Number two worst match. From Backlash, 2002 versus Bradshaw. Two stars. I had zero recollection of this match, so I rewatched it. Right off the bat, I'm not sure why Scott Hall is so afraid of everyone. And yeah, this match is bad, all right? It's just, it's so sluggish. And and Hall is clearly gassed from the moment the bell sounds. It's also weird to see Hall getting the shit kicked out of him by one half of the APA. I mean, I get what they're trying to do here with Bradshaw, but for me, it just felt too early. Hall is stooging around like a real loser too. I the The fake laugh... Off the beginning with the toothpick throw is terrible. This is a huge waste of six minutes of pay-per-view time. And it's such a clear indication that the WWF gave no shits about the NWO merely two months after they debuted. Someone should really put in a call to the offices of Jack Tunney to see if this lethal dose of poison has been devenomized by the lab. And Scott Hall's worst match in the WWF from Good Friends Better Enemies versus Vader. Two stars. This would be Vader's last match before he would move to WCW and completely change the industry. He tries to get Vader over in it, which he does, but it's a bit of a 15-minute snooth fest. This probably should have been Vader killing him for five minutes, right? But again, we get an unmotivated Razor, which does Vader no favors. He won the match, Vader, but doesn't really come out looking like a monster. So the common theme to these bad matches... It's clear, of the five, three of them are during late 1995, early 1996, where Razor was clearly checked out. One was with IRS, and one was Hall's final pay-per-view appearance. Two months after the Bradshaw match, he appears in TNA and looks completely invigorated. Man, I wish he'd had that fire in the NWO run. Again, I get not wanting to be there when they're presenting a watered-down, lame version of a great thing that you created. All right. Bad matches are one thing. Let's deal with his top five matches in the company. Number five from the SummerSlam 1994 versus Diesel for the Intercontinental Championship. Three and three-quarter stars. I just think this is such a great... This match is the definition of fun. It's a wild, chaotic brawl which doesn't stop from bell to bell. Walter Payton has Razor's back. Shawn Michaels is firmly in the corner of Diesel. And Razor is so great as the guy who was cheated out of the belt. And this feels like a perfect comeuppance match against Diesel and Shawn. Payton is even the odds. And now finally, finally our hero will overcome. You know, the kind of easy storytelling they don't do anymore. Diesel's solid. 
But Shawn Michaels' work on the outside is sublime. I love the moment when he gets Peyton to distract the ref, and then he runs around the ring and levels Razor with a jumping clothesline. It's just great stuff. Razor wins the Intercontinental title back. Huge reaction. Everyone goes home happy. Man, if only SummerSlam 94 didn't have that Undertaker-Undertaker main event, this would be a tremendous compliment to a a great card top to bottom. It's so good that we can even forgive Sweetness wearing that shirt tucked into black jeans. Number four best match versus Bret Hart. The Royal Rumble, 1993. Again, three and three quarters. And it's interesting and maybe telling. This is the only match in the top five, not including a click member. And as much as I didn't love the early character of Razor Ramon, I thought he did a tremendous job here of giving Brett a credible win on pay-per-view at the start of his reign. It's nearly 18 minutes of solid action. And Brett was great. Razor was game. Fantastic job. Number three, teaming with the 123 Kid versus Diesel and Shawn Michaels from the Action Zone in 1994. Four and a half stars. Look, from opening bell, right? From the opening bell where Michaels gets razor's edge 30 seconds in to the frenetic finish. This is a classic and a lost gem. Look, go out of your way to find it on daily motion. If you haven't seen it, I don't know why it's not on the damn network or the cock or whatever it is. Now everyone on this thing still seems to be liked by the company. Put it up. I don't get it. It's just such a great testament to how tremendous these four could be when they were motivated. The kid's exceptional. Razor's just as great. Just go watch it. Go watch it. You'll thank me. Number two best match. I mean, look, we know where we're going here. Number two best match versus Shawn Michaels in a ladder match for the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam 1995. Four and three-quarter stars. So, I'll leave the latter discussion for the next match. I think this one's almost as good uh, in my eyes as the WrestleMania 10 Classic. I think the match, in theory, actually works better with Michaels as the face. Hell, even Ramon, face-face is fine. But two things for me keep it from the vaunted realm of perfection. One, I don't think they use the latter as well or as violently in this one. And two... The ending does have a bit of an unfortunate botch, and I can forgive botches, but this one's pretty obvious. Now, I will, um, I will definitely agree there's a high level of difficulty in what they're doing, so it doesn't ruin the match or anything, but I think it makes it a step down from Razor's number one match, which is obviously versus Shawn Michaels' WrestleMania 10 ladder match, Intercontinental Championship, five stars. And I don't, think a con- I don't think it's a controversial five stars at all. Perhaps one of the most influential matches of all time. I would argue to this day, it's still the best one-on-one ladder match in wrestling history. And on a good day too, I could easily talk myself into placing it higher than like the Edge, Christian, Hardys, Dudley's like trio of matches um, that happened later. What I love about this one though, more than anything, is how violent both guys get with the ladder. Sean is smashing it into his chest. Razor's throwing it at him, right? It's not just about climbing and, and, and hope spots. No, no, no. They are trying to murder each other with a ladder. I love, too, that the match comes out of a logical storyline, right? There's two guys with a claim to the championship. 
So they put the titles above the ring. Whoever grabs them is the champion. It's the kind of match, too, that could have killed the genre. Like, if it's bad, it's, they're not doing it again. But instead, it birthed this whole new version of a match. It was so perfect that they didn't even dare to do another one on a big stage until a year and a half later. And even then, it's with the same guys. It's a beautifully violent match that crescendos to a near-perfect finish with Michael stuck in the ropes and Ramon standing victorious. I also know that Bret Hart always seems to be upset that Michaels took this match and made it his own. But I'll be honest, I'm not sure it would have... Now, this is no slight against Bret Hart. But I just don't think this is, would have been as good with a guy like Bret in it. Again, not a slight to the hitman. But I just feel it's much more suited to a guy like Michaels with his skill set. He bounces around way more, does more flying stuff with the ladder. I just think it's the best combination of guys for this type of match. A bruiser like Razor and a flyer like Sean. And look, I enjoy The Rock Triple H, Benoit Jericho. I like those versions. But it doesn't click as well for me. Nor would a Brett Sean iteration. And despite what Legend would say, they don't really even have the best chemistry together anyway. Even though this isn't Shawn Michaels' best match in the company, I think it's clearly Razor's. And he deserves, a, like, this deserves it. It deserves a place among the greatest matches of all time. Currently, I have it as the 26th best match in company history. But as I mentioned, on a good day, I could see it as high as 20. Man, awesome matches from Razor. Let's deal with our next category. Promos. So, I struggled to think of one truly great Razor Ramon promo. I still can't think of one. It seems like everyone else has something you can kind of point to. Hey, this is the best one. And Hall gets better when he's in WCW. But I think there he's just playing a version of himself. So I look for some Scott Hall NWO footage in the WWF. And while he does cut promos, there's a problem. It's always against Steve Austin. And this is at the height of the what stuff. Which makes cutting a coherent promo nearly impossible for the dude. I did find a promo from the summer of 1995 after he was named the number one contender to Shawn Michaels' Intercontinental title. Let's give it a listen and see if we can break it down. That gorilla Monsoon, he's so smart. He knew something that two other people knew. Razor Ramon's number one contender. Razor knows it. Shawn Michaels knows it. How does Razor feel about Shawn Michaels? Hey, he's pretty good. He a three-time Intercontinental champ. But Chicos, I'm the first three-time Intercontinental champ. Michaels, do you respect the bad guy? You better, Chico. Because just think back. The ladder match, the last time we met, I'm the only man to take your precious IC gold. And Chico, talk about summer slams. When you're riding down that road with Big Daddy Cool, ask him, Chico. I'm the only one to ever beat him, too. So right away, he is still in the full Razor Ramon character with accent. And it may be me, but for some reason I seem to remember him kind of lessening that as the character grew more into a face. Now, he begins by talking about Gorilla Monsoon. He talks about Gorilla Monsoon being so smart that he knew something that only two other people knew. Then he says, 
Razor Ramon's number one contender. Now, I know, or I figured out later, that he meant to say Razor Ramon is the number one contender. But it came off sounding like the possessive, as in the contender that is belonging to Razor Ramon. Now, this feels like a small detail, but I think it's a clear example of the Cuban accent hurting the presentation a little bit. Like, it threw me for a loop. I, and, and why it confused me, because like if, if it's Razor Ramon's um, number one contender, it means that Razor's the champion. And I knew he wasn't the Intercontinental Champion at the point, but I struggled with the verbiage, right? So I had to stop watching and look it up. And this is rare for me in this period. Like, look, when I'm, when I'm really suffering from insomnia, I will go through the lineage of these titles in order in an effort to sleep. Oddly enough, this is not an impressive feat to anyone on the outside world that doesn't like wrestling. But I was confused because I'm like, wait a minute, he wasn't champion, right? Anyway, back to the promo. He then does a great thing where he plays with rate of delivery and has a really great tone change when he drops in that Shawn Michaels knows it, right? He, he, he brings it down, he goes, you know it, and Shawn Michaels knows it. The slowing down emphasizes it and it puts the focus on we're gonna deal with Shawn Michaels now. And I love that he puts over Shawn Michaels, he goes, he's pretty good. That feels in character. He'd put him over, but not that much. Then listen to the contrast between lauding Michaels as being a three-time Intercontinental Champion and then saying, I was the first three-time Intercontinental Champion. So it's like, it's great. He was a three-time Intercontinental Champion, but I, he really puts the focus back on him. It's great. And then you can hear the upturn in intensity when he declares himself the first. He puts himself over Michaels here without sounding too grandiose. And it's, it, it works because it's a good it's a it's a good thing for him to say because it's not bombast. It's true. He then asks Michaels if he respects him, but cautions him to respect him. And you can hear the warning in his face. If there's an action there, it's warning him. He goes, you better, man. Razor closes with two strong lines. First about having beaten Michaels in the ladder match, which is great, again, because it's true. And then stating that he's the only one to ever take the Intercontinental title away from him. And also telling him he's the only one that's ever beaten Diesel, who's champion at the time, which is true. So I think this is a well-constructed promo, which is probably held back a little bit by Halls using the fake accent. I mean, you see this all the time in actors, like especially in poor actors. And I'm not saying Scott Hall's a bad actor, but he's not a trained actor. He's a professional wrestler, and that's fair. But actors that are, that are a little behind will focus so hard on doing the accent that they miss the nuance of things that make a performance true and by consequence great. I like Razor's use of rate of delivery. He slows down the important parts. But listen to how he talks about beating Michaels and beating Diesel. Both are slowed down, but both are in the same tone. That's a bit of a mistake. Because as a person speaking about two different opponents with two different histories, a tone change would be natural there, right? Again, I don't think this is a bad promo by any stretch, but I think he's just handicapped by the accent. He's still interesting to listen to, but I would venture to say that stretched out to three minutes rather than the one that this was, he might get boring really fast. So I spent also after this a good like half hour listening to heel Razor Ramon promos to give a contrast to the face one. But aside from him saying things like, we're going to cut you up. 
none of these were particularly interesting. I think Razor gets by on mannerisms and tiny character moments instead of physical words coming out of his mouth. And yes, I know that words can't be physical, despite what <laughs> these, these liberals, these liberals who are decrying hurt feelings would say. But listen, his promos really suffer from a bit of a lack of variety, especially early on. It's a good thing he's got so many other intangibles. Otherwise, he really would have struggled to get over just by doing a Tony Montana accent. I think, I think that would have been hard. So for promos, um, I'm giving Scott Hall a four. I think he's a little below average in terms of promos. Great character, not great promos. Historical importance. I think Razor does a wonderful job kind of defining the promotion throughout the 1990s. See, when I think of the era... It's him and Bret Hart that immediately spring to mind. His run in 1994 is incredible when it comes to being the number two face in the promotion. It's Bret than him. I know you might think Undertaker, but I find that Undertaker always kind of transcended that stuff. I think it's a real short list too for number two baby faces being great. It's like Randy Savage in 87, 88, The Rock, 99, 2001. I think Razor might be next. And the role of number two baby face is really important to the company. Number one, his job is to help guys get ready to fight the champion if the champion's a babyface. This obviously has to be a guy that fans are invested in, and Razor had that in spades. But I think he also has to act as a kind of proxy for the top guy if you're not the type of fan that's into the top guy. So in the 1990s, I didn't like Brett. I just don't think that I understood wrestling enough to understand how great he was. But it was okay that I didn't like Brett because I had Razor. I could cheer for Razor. Just having that one guy that locks you into the product is of the utmost importance. He also does a tremendous job of maintaining the prestige of the Intercontinental title. The title felt almost as important as the world title around Razor's waist. He's probably the most imposing and credible champion since the Ultimate Warrior at this point, in terms of star power anyway. And maybe since. In that promo, we listen to he also we also learned he's really the only ever guy who really beat diesel fairly at least until Shawn michaels came along he was presented on par to the champion and that my friends is a rare thing it's also no small feat that he arrives in the scene at exactly the right time for this type of character remember they're going for cool now i think scott hall is a good enough performer uh to have been great in any era including the uber-athletic WWE vacuum that is today. But he probably gets lost in the shuffle in the 1980s and probably maybe feels like a relic in the 2000s. And listen, it's no surprise that once he left the WWF in 1996, WCW started kicking their ass. Yes, the NWO gimmick was incredible and fresh, but it's easy to forget that they poached one of their top and most important stars. It takes bringing back Sid Justice to replace any sort of cool face rep the WWF had at the time. I mean, look, it's hard. It's hard to have cool face rep. And I mean, a dude stripping for his Mexican mentor probably doesn't scream cool or normal or human. Razor's also a guy who was really good for business, right? He had the best match on the show a lot. Razor fights in 28 pay-per-views in his WWF career. Four of those produces the best match on the show. And he never gives us the worst match on a given night. So his character 
His character is integral to the promotion at the time, but he also helped and never hindered individual shows. He's an anchor. He's a huge anchor during a time that desperately needed an anchor. He's uber important to the era. So for importance, I'm going seven out of 10. For presentation, um, I mean, right from the start, you knew they had high hopes for him. They invested a lot of time and money in those debut vignettes. And think of the money they spent on those shirts. Those fucking things were so loud I could barely hear Razor speaking over them. Imagine the time and the effort it took to film him walking around those fountains and bullying those minimum wage workers, harassing undocumented fruit vendors, not to mention the old ass cars he had to drive around in. See, those vignettes went a long way to making him feel special and important. Without these, he probably can't step into a main event level feud, regardless of any machismo or how many times he can say, mira, mira, mira. I think another aspect of his presentation that bears mention is how they always play to his strengths. I brought up his clear deficit when it came to vocal variety in his promos. So they sent him out there for a minute or two at a time. They surrounded him with the type of workers who could make him look good. It's no surprise that his rise to face them, he's in there with the kid, Shawn Michaels, even the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. The fireworks behind him were always cool, worthy of a pop. It looked like, it, it, it's funny because as a heel, he's walking around those water fountains. As a face, he's like, he's posing in front of a, like a fireworks fountain. And even that pose, which in retrospect was the prototype of the Batista pose, felt organic. It's not Orton putting his arms in the air like that or Dakota Kai half voguing her face just because she has to do a different pose. No, it felt like this dude was trying to pump himself up. Get ready for the match. That's what a good pose is. The bad guy moniker was also very smart. He's not a good guy. We didn't, you know, it's funny. We didn't even really like hear uh, the word good guy on TV. They would never say good guy or bad guy. In fact, Vince would go on television two years later and lament good guys versus bad guys. But again, that simple name alluded to the allure and mystique of the man. Despite the fact that he never really did anything bad. I mean, I guess the worst thing he did was bring Savio Vega into the promotion, but that's not a bad thing to do. Now let's listen to his theme music. That music's iconic. I mean, I like the brakes screeching at the start. You know what? Now that I think about it, it might be the first instance of like a tag at the start. That's pretty influential. I mean, whether you have the success of Austin's glass break or uh, the cringe-inducing madness of Ricochet's bouncing bullets, um, the tag off the top is really a ubiquitous thing in the world of wrestling. His, his song was perfect, though. And you wouldn't expect something with such a slow beat to work, but it does because he fucking made it work. You also wouldn't think that a man walking sideways would work, but he made that shit look cool too. Without that soundtrack in the back, he probably doesn't look as cool walking under the ladder at WrestleMania 10. The beat is cool. It's great, but it's the keyboard that brings it all together. Oh, awesome. Just perfect. And it, 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 that keyboard adds a sense of like importance to the music. It's such a simple song but it's so incredibly effective. Uh, the NWO song, obviously a classic great, but for me, it's the Razor song all the way to the top. So for presentation, I mean, I, I think it's really well done. I'm going to give him an eight, and I think he's probably the, the best presented character that I've seen so far on the show out of two. 
This would probably be a good place to rank his championship reigns. Since Jake didn't have any, we didn't do it. But let's rank them. They're all intercontinental. He had five. Uh, I thought he had five, but it's only four, which I thought was surprising. Anyway, uh, the fourth one. He has an intercontinental title reign from May 19th. Oh, May 19th. May 19th, 1995 to May 21st, 1995. So he won the belt at a Montreal house show of all things. Of course, of course, it's the one house show I didn't go to. Nor did I bust my ass to go to Trois-Rivières for the rematch where he won the belt back from Jarrett. For context, Trois-Rivières is about 90 minutes from where I was living. And it had a bridge that I was afraid of. And it wasn't that I was afraid to cross the bridge. Uh, that would have been normal. No, it just the bridge looked like a demonic structure. And not a hell in a cell demonic structure. Like a structure that looked like it will come alive. Kind of like an electricity tower. And I could see it from my godfather's window. Like, I probably shouldn't have been scared of bridges when I was like 15 years old. But I probably shouldn't have been afraid of Jesus coming to life and walking across my lawn either. Anyway, this was a nothing rain. Two days. Three. Uh, from the time he buries Dean Douglas at Great White North until dropping it to Goldust in the Rumble. It's not bad or anything. It's just, he's still over. It's just, he's not doing anything interesting in this. Right? Except for the wild card match at the 95 Survivor Series. But even then, that's not really part of his reign. And for the first time, he really feels like a transitionary champion. 91 days long. So, barely long at all either. Number two best IC reign. Uh, he holds the belt for 146 days from SummerSlam 94 until the 1995 Rumble. He's kind of the height of his popularity here. Really an incredible run. And, I mean, number one, the first time's always the best. Unless it's sex. Because, like... That's really a slow realization that it's way easier to get a condom on a banana in school than like than like putting it on yourself when it's the first time and you're excited and like you've never done it before. God, it's bad. Anyway, this title reign is great. 198-day reign uh, after he beats Rick Martel for the vacant title. We get the classic ladder match. Look, the run is so good. I'm not even really mad about the Mike Rotundo uh, appearance. Razor 2 also just looked cool, right? And his gear always looked great. I loved the simple design of the gold razors across a variety of colors. A small thing like that, like simple variation on a theme, added, added to him. And it's one more tool in the toolbox to look cool. Let's break down the looks. Number five, best look. Um, I'm going to go off the beaten path here and talk about um, when he's ta he's got this, it's the vignette, the take, whatever I want promo. The shirt is like half black and white. And then the other half, like left to right, the other half is like a rainbow bonanza tucked into blue pants. Blue pants! Who wears blue pants? And I guarantee you his shoes were white. I guarantee you. Uh, number four, I like the purple tights with gold razors. Number three, red tights, gold razors. Number two, green tights, gold razors. And number one, black tights, gold razors. And I know it's all variation on the same. I know it's probably arbitrary and you probably have your own version of this ranking. But I don't know. I love that black look. I think it's so good. Um, allow me a brief interlude too uh, into his WWF NWO look. Now, there's a shot uh, from WrestleMania 18 where he's standing on the ramp pointing. If you Google, if you just go to Google and, Scott, and Google Scott Hall WrestleMania 18, it's like the fourth image that pops up. This picture is most of what's wrong with the WWF incarnation of the New World Order. The logo on the tights is is so clean 
It looks like they got like a makeup lady to really polish it over or something. It's like an almost perfect framing of the NWO logo and it's just plastered across the tights. It's not like the drips of yore um, back in the WCW days, right? There was nothing clean about the NWO. In fact, when they first released the t-shirts in WCW, it looks like one of them just bought a bunch of plain black t-shirts and then pressed the NWO logo on it themselves. It looked like a guerrilla operation, not something with a machine behind it. That's the concept the WWF could never grasp. Their worldview seemed to be, watch us clean this thing up. And in doing so, they killed it dead. I never really got to why they didn't capitalize more on Razor when it came to merch. I mean, he had that Razor necklace, which was super lame, but I was also super happy to buy it in 1994. I think I still have it somewhere. But then, he had perhaps the worst wrestling t-shirt of all time. Yes, it's the yellow monstrosity with his giant head on it. Uh, look, far and away, the worst thing ever made by a human, all right? And there's another one with like a pale-ass Undertaker on it, and it's still better than this. Man, I wish I had that shirt. To this, I'd wear it. I would wear it today. His Hasbro figure was incredibly basic. Uh, and then we got the original Jax line. They didn't care. Uh, they gave no shits about wrestling, uh, proper face scans, or satisfying customers who couldn't care less about bone-crunching action. All right, feuds. Feuds. It's time to play the feud. Feud, I'm at five on ten. I think this is where Razor Ramon, Scott Hall, whatever you want to call him, falls a bit short. He seems to have series of matches rather than feuds. He does, however, have a couple that stand out. First is his feud, well, his real feud, which is against the kid. Now, apparently, um, he was also supposed to feud with Randy Savage, uh, but after Survivor Series 92, that kind of goes away. Then Razor floats, uh, fighting with Bret Hart, uh, beating the wrestler with wrestling at WrestleMania 9. Man, that's a lot of wrestling. He beat the wrestler with wrestling. I think JR says that, right? That had to be the call where Vince decided no more mentions of wrestling on TV. He probably was probably like, look, if that Oki says wrestling one more time, I'm going to humiliate him in his hometown forever. But these matches, the matches I just mentioned, they're not feuds, right? They're matchups with a bit of a build. Now, I think the kid, his first feud, now his first feud is with the kid, right? And uh, which is strange because it's really less about him and the kid. And look, I'm not trying to get all psychological here. But really, this is more Razor feuding with himself, right? So while you may call it Razor and the Kid, I'll go with Scott Hall fighting his Jungian shadow, right? And as much as I like Razor in his actions here, including putting up the money, um, his own money for another shot at beating the Kid, it's just strange that the payoff to Razor Kid is Razor fighting Ted DiBiase. Now... He does us all a favor and gets us gets us Ted DiBiase off pay-per-view for good. But still, strange, right? You know, I think you can probably look... It's funny. You can probably look at Razor's whole run in relation to the kid. He gets beat up, decides to become this kid's big brother. Then he cheats on the kid with a Caribbean legend. And the kid joins... Whoa! The kid joins Ted DiBiase. You know, maybe I haven't given the writers enough credit for this clearly planned out long-term story. No, 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 no. It wasn't laziness that placed the kid with Ted DiBiase. No, 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 no. It was the kid's realization that the only guy who truly knew the real Razor Ramon in 1993 was the Million Dollar Man.
Ted Newraiser was a joke. And when the kid came home to find a sack of Savio Vega semen on the night table, he had no choice but to join the corporation. I think the big feud, though, is against Michaels and Diesel. It's hard to parse them out, but it really lasts the entirety of 94. And 94 is Razor's best year. So I like that they fuck him out at the title midway. It's a great revenge story. Then they manage to get some mileage, taking their issue all the way to Survivor Series. It's a story about competition with a hint of personal animus. See, the problem with Razor Ramon feuds in many ways is that they're predecessors of the modern feuds of today. Not personal issues, series of matches. I mean, I like that Jarrett and Ramon feud over the Intercontinental title, but it never feels personal, right? Jarrett's not after Razor Ramon. He's trying to use the WWF, right? I mean, look, Jarrett destroys Razor's leg like Jarrett destroyed my love for watching wrestling. I think the Goldust feud could have worked, but Razor didn't want to fight or fuck a man in a gold suit. You know, it's what it is. I mean, I suppose the less said about the Austin Hall feud, the better. I don't think the match was bad or anything, but the build was cinder blocks. But it felt like a personal issue. But man, if those cinder blocks were exploding, they were either weak as shit or Austin has a Lex Luger forearm for a knee. So yeah, not the best showing in this category. The lack of solid personal issues hurts. I'm guessing that as we go forward, this will become more and more a problem with modern guys. I'm curious though. If having one or two great feuds would lift someone out of the middle of the pack. Like when we get to a guy like Randy Orton, right? How much does the Cactus feud elevate him considering almost all his feuds are just series of matches? Matches. Razor has no real great feuds, but a couple of good ones. So that's why he falls a bit short here. Moments. If Razor fails in feuds, he thrives in moments. The kid beating him it's really the first huge moment in the history of Raw. Now, I'm sure we'll speak about that more when we deal with Sean Waltman. But it doesn't work without Razor. This is almost certainly the best angle that Razor is part of in the WWF. You need an angry character like Razor to make it work. It's his hot-headedness mixed with his hubris. It makes for the perfect outcome. Beating DiBiase in his first shot as a face is fun. Winning the Intercontinental a bunch of times. Shit, even putting the kid in the diaper is, in theory, a good moment. I'll just be repeating myself here if I go on and on about the moments, but his career is short enough that we can still picture all of them. So, talk about, uh, talking about a single worst moment, he doesn't really have one, right? I'm struggling to think of a single worst moment, so I'll go a little outside the box And I think it's probably getting suspended before WrestleMania 12. And I think it hurts. I like Piper and all, but Razor would have killed it performing that hate crime against Goldust. I mean, the whole not wanting to work with a dude because like of 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 like homosexual implications is lame. And I think he knows it too. And I've heard him express regret in his interviews. So it's cool that he's grown, right? So single best moment. Single best moment for me in his WWF career has to be him standing on the ladder at WrestleMania 10 with both belts and outstretched arms. Crowds going crazy and Razor's really truly achieved, like he's, he's arrived as a major player. If he'd gone on to win multiple world titles, this would have been the moment they replayed as the start of it all. It should be in the WWF like then, now, forever tag. It's an incredible moment and a brilliant visual because he's standing on the ladder. Awesome stuff. See, it's those moments that like hook people into wrestling for life.
So as for moments, like I mentioned, I think he thrives. I'm giving him an eight for moments because he's got a bunch of title wins too, right? So that gives us a score for Razor Ramon of 62.016 points out of 100. That falls quite far behind Jake Roberts' 76.356. Insane, right? But here, Hall gets kind of crushed on promos. He gets crushed on not being a really great heel. And he gets crushed on his narrative not being strong. That's where the work, that's where he falls, right? Because they're equal in face, they're equal in work. Razor's more important. Razor's got better presentation. His feuds are a bit less. And Razor's got better moments. So really, if they had just strung together a better narrative, if he was a bit better of a heel, bit better promo, man, he overtakes him here. But as it is, right now he's standing second in our rankings, which is in no way anything to be ashamed of. Look, I think I've, I've said enough about Razor, right? Clearly a brilliant performer who will always go down as one of wrestling's biggest what-ifs. He had it all. Great look, indomitable charisma, great in-ring presence. His matches were all universally good, and he always, had a, he always had a way with his character, right? He was always all in. He was the coolest dude in the history of the promotion. See, guys like Razor are some of the most necessary guys on the roster. We need alternatives as we watch. We need people we can connect to. Performers like Scott Hall suck you in. They make you believe what you're watching is credible, even when it's a dude with gold razors all over his junk. I can't picture this era or wrestling in general without Scott Hall. He didn't make the sport, but instead, he made every moment that he was on screen better. He made me care he made me love wrestling. Razor Ramon, man. That dude was the best. See you next time on The Wrestler That Was. In my lifetime, I've learned. Hard work pays off. Dreams come true. Bad times don't last, but bad guys do.